Is this on yet? Barely? Okay. I think it'll... Okay. Yeah, he'll get it up a little louder. All right. Uh, first of all, let me just say, everybody, that, you know, most of you know I've been kind of under the weather, to say the least, and I appreciate all your prayers and emails and cards and letters and the whole deal. And, and uh, the last two months is kind of like a blur, but it's behind me, I, I think. I was telling somebody, I've kind of learned now when you talk about your, they say, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to do this, this, this? And I said, well, from now on, I'm putting two words before everything. God willing. <laughs> because I, I already knew, but, you know, you learn from experience that uh, you have no control over anything, you know. Every day you, you wake up, something else can happen or something can be changed. And uh, so I just praise the Lord that, Hopefully I am back. And we are studying a series uh, now uh, on the wildest and craziest stories in the Bible, uh, which is, we're shortened to six weeks, so we're, uh, most of the stories are going to be in the book of Genesis. And if you'll, just a reminder, you already know this because most of you have been here many times, but uh, the questions for next week are on the table. So I would appreciate if you take those. And uh, try to spend 30, 40 minutes during the week to answer those so you're prepared when you get here. And the questions for this week, if you uh, need them, I hopefully you got them uh, in your email, but always put some extras back there on the table uh, where you pay. So today's questions are back there. Next week's are on your table. So please take those with you. This is going to be a six-week session. So we'll be through uh, before Thanksgiving. And uh, so these, these wild and crazy stories are ones that you heard when you were kids. We all, we all heard them when, our kid, when we were kids. And so uh, they're stories that are just amazing, but you don't really make sense of them when you're a kid and until you really get into the meat of it and study the context and everything that's going on there. You don't really understand a lot of these stories like Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael. And so uh, we're going to be getting into these stories. And I think that title, Wildest and Craziest, uh, is really appropriate considering the signs of our times. And we live in some wild and crazy times, don't we? I mean, that deal last night was amazing. But let me say, you're not going to believe this. I have the actual video of Trump prepping for last night's debate. No, nobody else has this. I have the video of Trump being prepped for last night's debate, and you are going to see it here. <laughs> All right, so if you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn to Genesis chapter 4. And we'll look at the Cain and Abel story. When I was at Dallas Seminary, we, we kind of breezed through the beginning of Genesis. They wanted to emphasize mostly the life of Abraham, and we only had 10 weeks in the book of Genesis. So I never really studied it until later. And about what happened was about 15 years ago, I was teaching a Bible study in the New Testament, and this somebody brought as a guest this brilliant, Ph.D. guy from UT Southwestern and, and said, boy, that's a scientist and he's 
doing all this stuff, and he's won all these awards, and he's brilliant and everything. I said, wow, you know, he's come to see me, you know. Well, about two or three weeks later, he sent me a letter, true story. I get this letter, and, it, and he says, just kind of a quick summation, he says, my favorite story is Cain and Abel. It explains all the problems of the human race. People are in unloved as children, and they're shaped by their parents and their environment as they become, so they become troubled and confused, and uh, they are even provoked into rebellion, and they commit crimes and violence, and it's not their fault. And he says, Cain is a perfect representative of the human race. He's a product of God-loving Abel, but not Cain. And he said, this is why I cannot believe in the God of the Bible. So I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I got to do something here. I got to straighten this guy out, you know. So I got all fired up. I went out and read all these books and talked to all these people and did all this research, spent about 100 hours, you know. And I wrote up everything that, you know, I had uh, discovered and all the notes I'd taken. Sent him a three-page letter back trying to tell the true story of Cain and Abel like we're going to look at today and after he got that he read it and I got this reply no that's not it <laughs> you know once again you know totally beaten down so after that I decided to teach the Cain and Abel story to uh, my regular Bible studies but I continued to be blown away on people's reaction to this story. I had no idea uh, what, what most people thought. Uh, at least 90% of the people didn't know anything about the story except they knew that Cain killed his brother Abel. That's, I mean, that's all they knew. And the people that did know the story, amazingly enough, the majority of them actually empathized with Cain. They said, well, no wonder he did that. The poor guy, he brought his own, you know, produce that he uh, was proud of, and God crushed him, <clears throat> and for absolutely no reason wouldn't accept his sacrifice, his offering. I mean, he just really got messed around by God. It's not right. I went, Really? That's, um, I mean, I, I was amazed. And this is the, in my view, the, the view of the whole human race. They either totally don't understand or know the story, or they have a completely wrong view of it, and even take Cain's side of the story and think that he got a bad deal. So I uh, endeavored to, to, like, help people understand this, and I realized how important this story is and understanding all the other truths that are in the Bible. And I really believe if you understand this story and what's really going on here, you, it, it will help you understand the rest of the Bible. Because obviously the key to this story is not the murder. I mean, that's what everybody knows. But the key to this story is the sacrifices they made. That's the contrast. They made different sacrifices, and it wasn't that God loved one of them more than the other. 
that's absolutely not in the story. People just somehow get that out of there. But God accepted one sacrifice and not the other. So apparently there was something about Abel's sacrifice that was good and righteous, and there was something about Cain's that was not. That's the key to the story that nobody else, but of course this group, nobody else gets. And if you understand the significance of the sacrifice that each made, one right and one wrong, you can understand salvation, God's plan to redeem mankind as well. Because what it comes down to, and, this, and Jesus perfectly represents this, is our sins have to be atoned for. And God decides what the atonement is. And I think, I'm, I hopefully will prove in, in the next 30 minutes, that God's instructions, that he instructed Adam and Eve, and of course Cain and Abel, to bring him a blood sacrifice. I mean, going way back into Genesis 2 and 3, when God said, if you sin, if you're disobedient, you will surely die. So they deserved to die for their, their sin and their disobedience. But what God was going to do is provide, out of love, he was going to provide an atonement, a covering for that sin. They deserved to die, but an innocent sacrifice, blood sacrifice, could be made so that they could approach God. And that's the importance of this story. And if people understand that, they'll understand the significance of Jesus. Because he was the, he is the, the ultimate blood sacrifice that atones for sin. His sacrifice was of infinite value. So only God could make that kind of sacrifice. Everybody else has their own sin. And they can't, you know, I, I can't sacrifice for your sin because I deserve to die for mine. So it required a perfectly sinless sacrifice of infinite value, Jesus Christ. I, I went on to, when, when I was doing the research for that guy's letter, uh, I, I saw a Bill Moyer special on television, on PBS about the Bible and about religion and about the Cain and Abel story. And I, again, blown away. He was interviewing, you know, how they do on those deals. They interview all those Ivy League scholars. And amazing thing, all these Ivy League scholars are supposed to be brilliant and know everything. They know very little about the Bible. <laughs> they know a whole lot about secular culture and can tell you about the history and how people lived back in then and everything. They don't know anything about the Bible. And I'll give you a few experts. They asked him about this story. One of the professors at Harvard said, that story, an angry God destroys not only sinners, but innocent animals. So, I mean, that, that's what he saw. Okay, God required a blood sacrifice? Those poor animals. Those innocent, I mean, what? The next guy, a Harvard psychologist, 
God set a dangerous precedent provoking people to murder. They blamed Cain's actions on God. He provoked the guy. Another professor, God does indeed play favorites. He sees the story as God playing favorites, as God loving Abel and not Cain. They interviewed some poet. I have no idea why this guy would be an extra an expert, but Stephen Mitchell, a poet, says, God is a terrible parent. <laughs> he's jealous, he's punitive, and he's arbitrary. <laughs> These guys are supposed to be brilliant. A Princeton scholar. God is jealous of his own people and deficient in understanding them. <laughs> well, I could go on and on. I got about 10 of them. But the bottom line, you, you can see all these brilliant people reading this story from a secular point of view. They all saw, they were all brilliant experts, supposedly, but they all had empathy for Cain. They saw the story through Cain's eyes, and they blamed God. Also, I, I started thinking about it. When you think about all the movies that have been made and all the novels that have been written, hundreds of them, and a lot of the most popular ones, have been about people like Cain, people who are tortured souls, who are misfits, Right? People that are outcasts. And it wasn't their fault. You know, and so the author or the, or the movie maker, by the end of the movie or the novel, they have you thinking, that poor guy, Cain, he's just really got a raw deal. I feel so bad for Cain. You know, that, that, that's the mark of a good movie or a good novel, is to bring your audience where you want them to be. And my favorite was uh, John Steinbeck wrote East of Eden. And I knew about it, really, because of the James Dean movie back in the 50s. Remember James Dean? He was that great actor. He won an Academy Award. Steinbeck himself won the Pulitzer Prize. And he said his novel, East of Eden, was his crown jewel. It was the best one he ever wrote. And remember, he wrote The Grapes of Wrath and several others. And in that, that, that's a 20th century, that novel's a 20th century version of the Cain and Abel story. There's two sons with a very authoritarian father figure. And in the story, the one son, Abel, it's just like the story here, he makes straight A's in high school. He's the president of his class. He's the high school quarterback. And then Cain is the mess up. He makes D's and F's. He gets expelled from school. He gets caught at a, at a uh, house of ill repute. He's always in trouble with the law. And he's this tortured soul, you know. And James Dean does it, plays it to the hilt, right? So I, was, I, I got the video and I was watching it. And I wrote down one of his, one of his lines in there. James Dean, you know, talking to his father, and he says, nothing I do is right or acceptable to you. You never loved me. 
You always love my brother best. I can't do anything right in your eyes, and it's not fair. And of course, if you really look at the story, you're going, really? You're nothing but a criminal and a, and a, and a jerk. And you blame me for all? Well, but again, that's what these novels do. They, they drag you in and they, they want you to feel the pain of this tortured soul. And so the human race looks at this story with kind of a warped view. And they want to blame it on God. It's not my fault. I had this tough upbringing. My dad loved brother best, you know. But what we'll see in the story is God loved Cain. And, and God gave him instructions on what to do and how to do it. And Cain exercised his freedom, his free will choice, his volition to say, no, I'm not going to blame a, a blood sacrifice. I'm proud of what I do for a living. I'm going to bring a grain sacrifice, you know, what I made with my own two hands. And so he brought the grain. And God, what does God do? We'll see it in a minute. God says, look, he, approach, he takes the initiative to approach Cain. You got nothing to be angry about. I gave you the instructions. You know what's right and wrong. If you do what's right, it'll turn out great. You'll be fine. But if you don't, if you continue deeper into sin, you know what's going to happen? All your lust and pride and desire is going to dominate your life and run your life. And it won't end well. So God gives him every opportunity, every instruction, and he gives him a warning. And the guy just goes deeper into sin, all the way to murder. So no, we don't take Cain. We don't have to empathize with Cain. And we don't blame God like the human race does for all the problems in the world. I wrote down some, uh, some questions can't find them naturally. <laughs> but I mean, uh, well, what did I do with them? Here they are. And I want to answer some of these during this study. Where did evil come from and whose responsibility is it? Secondly, is there only one way to God? And is that not too restrictive? Because I think uh, I've, I've seen uh, even surveys where the majority of professing Christians claim or say that they believe there's many ways to God. You know, that old deal, of, you know, God is, a, is like the top of a mountain and there's many paths up the mountain. <laughs> Yet the Bible is clear. There's only one way to God and it's through Jesus Christ. See? So this, this story answers that question. Is there really just one way to God? And why is that? If so, why? Why is that so? Secondly, or thirdly, excuse me, how can we be righteous and holy in God's eyes? That's the question, right? We want to get right with God. If we're separated from God, if we're alienated from God, we need to know how 
to get right with God. And that's in the story here. God lays it out for him. And fourthly, why was Jesus' death a necessity? I've, had pe- I've even thought myself, I've had people say, I've read people make the comment, well, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a messy thing, especially if you saw that, that movie, you know, that, that showed all that Jesus, you know, the passion of Christ, the blood, the, the pain, the suffering. Was that really necessary? Isn't there another way? Couldn't he do it? So that's the question. Is there some other way that our sins could have been atoned for? So we're going to try to answer all those before we're through here in 20 minutes. So let's actually look at the story. Uh, before we get into chapter 4, though, look at Genesis 3.15. Because I think it's important to know what happened before. The context of the preceding chapter has to do with you know, what theologians call the original sin. You know, God made man in his image, which has incredible meaning because all the other animals apparently were not made in God's image. They were wonderful and beautiful and awesome, but man was the last, the crowning achievement of God in his creation. And man was special. He was made in God. Man and woman were made in God's image. And part of that is cognitive reasoning. You can solve problems. You can reason. You can think. You can make choices. Free will. And free will is so important because God made us to have a loving, intimate relationship with him. But there's a funny thing about love. You can't force someone to love you, can you? You know, when you're in high school and you saw that person, that's the one, you know, and then they rejected you, right? The cruelty of it. You can't force someone to love you. They have to choose to do it. So when God made us in his image, he created also the possibility that we would reject him. He didn't create evil, but he created the possibility that we could make a wrong decision that would bring evil into the world. So the blame for that evil is not on God. It's, for, it's all on us for making those bad decisions. It's the consequence of us rejecting God and going our own way. And I say us, I mean the human race as a whole. Okay, so now in chapter 3, after God said, you know, if, if you do this, it's, it's going to be terrible. You shall surely die. And they didn't physically die. So you're going, what does he mean by that? Well, the Hebrew word used there is also used for separation. So not only would we physically die in time, we'd age and die, but we would be, the human race would be separated from God, alienated from God, Because of sin, God is perfectly holy and righteous and cannot be a part of sin. 
So now Adam and Eve, as disobedient sinners, they've lost that intimate fellowship that they had before. And there's a separation. There's a distance between them and God now. And then in chapter 3, God said, there's going to be unbelievable ramifications for this. It's going to change everything. You were made to have a loving relationship with me, and now that that's been broken, it's going to change everything. And so that's what chapter 3 is. All the consequences that are going to come into the world. And he lists a bunch of them, and, and you know, all, all that's wrong with the world came in. You know, all the natural disasters and all the disease and, and uh, everybody uh, being selfish and acting that way and the war and, and everything that's happened to the human race throughout history came into the world as a result of man wanting to run his own show. And I think it's interesting that instead of intervening and stopping man, God, uh, his Part of his judgment was to say, you want to do that? You want to run your life? Go right ahead. Let's see how that works. So God backed off and let them go their own way and do their own thing, I think, in order for them to experience what it would be like to lose that relationship with the living God. What is it like to live on my own? with me as the boss. I was created to have God as the boss. And life is only going to work with God as my boss. But what would it look like if I'm the boss? And it's ugly. <laughs> it's not good. It's not right. Things don't work. And so God goes on and he, he makes a prophetic statement in verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent, this is Satan in the form of a serpent is there. And God makes a prophecy to the serpent. Okay, from this point on, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's cryptic, but what he's saying there, and this is uh, proven throughout the rest of the Bible, what he's saying there is this is going to be the division of the human race. Some of Eve's descendants are going to be believers in God, but the majority are going to be unbelievers and go their own way. And there will always be strife between the two. There will be a struggle. And, of course, what's the first example of that struggle? Chapter 4 goes right into it. The first example of that prophecy, fulfillment of that prophecy, is Cain and Abel. <laughs> One believes God and obeys his instructions by faith. He doesn't understand it, why exactly it's got to be blood. 
but he believes God and is obedient by faith. Abel. The other one, out of pride, says, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this my way. The very idea that he wouldn't accept my produce that I made on my farm, right? Cain. And so the first fulfillment of this is Cain and Abel. And then the rest of Genesis, you know, 5, 4 and 5 is this so-and-so begat so-and-so and they begat so-and-so. And you've got the progression of, of this explosion of the human race, the vast majority of which is of, as he says, the descendants or the seed of the serpent or the devil. Even if they don't know, they don't need to be Satan worshipers or anything. Anybody that rejects God is on the same side of the adversary of God, right? And that's what God's saying here in Genesis 3.15. So Cain and Abel were the first of the age-old conflict of these two seeds that he specks there, that uh, he mentions there. Uh, it's really important before you get into the story I love it when the New Testament explains Old Testament stories. Because in the Old Testament, you don't get all the details. I mean, in the story, we're not going to be told the details. Oh, God gave them instructions and told them to bring a blood sacrifice. And I mean, the, the author's like, goes right to the point. He did this, he did that. God accepted this, didn't accept that. But in the New Testament, it's very clear what happened. Just a few passages. Hebrews 11.4 is the clearest. We're told, and Hebrews 11 is that passage about faith. And it goes through all the Bible characters in the Bible. And the author of Hebrews says, they were all accepted, declared righteous by God because they believed what God told them and they were obedient by faith. So whether you're talking about Noah, I mean, imagine Noah. God says, uh, I know it's never even rained, but it's going to start, and it's going to flood. You're in the middle of Nebraska. You're still going to be flooded out, so you need to go build this giant boat. Well, who would do that unless they believed God? You, you wouldn't build a boat like that unless you did. And so the author says, by faith, he was obedient to God and built the ark. And in Cain and Abel's story, he says, by faith, Abel offered a better or the perfect sacrifice than Cain, who didn't. So the author is saying the whole deal is the whole deal of his obedience by faith had to do with the sacrifice. And God approved one and not the other. And Abel had the obedience by faith that was required, and, and Cain did not. Okay? And he even goes on to say there in Hebrews 11.4 that God testified to the truth of that through the sacrifices that were made. 
So he's got it. So he makes it clear that what we're talking about here is those sacrifices. Then in First John, uh, John, the author, First John three twelve says Cain was of the evil one, Satan. So just like Genesis three fifteen said, the evil descendants of uh, the, of Satan of the serpent, and he John identifies Cain as one of those, so an unbeliever in that sense, or disobedient in that sense. And he slew his brother, and why did he do it? Because Cain's works, meaning the sacrifice, were evil. Why? Because they were disobedient to what God had instructed. But his brothers were righteous. Jude 11 is about false teachers and false religion. False teachers and false religion. And Jude says these false teachers have introduced heresy, incorrect teaching. They have changed the word of God. And he says, for they have gone the way of Cain. They've gone the way of Cain. So what is the way of Cain? Cain is like the father or the originator of all the worldly religions where people said, you know, there's plenty of ways to God. I'll just invent my own. I'm going to worship a God of my choosing. I'll decide what God's like and what God ought to do. And amazingly enough, God approves all of my lifestyle. I rob banks for a living, you know. But, that's, but God approves of that. And that's what the human race has done ever since. They come up with their own religions, their own God of their own choosing. And Cain was the beginning of that. So look at the story. Uh, verse 1, now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So they, they give God credit. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Abel had herds and animals, and Cain had, was a farmer. Very important. Both honorable professions. Both honorable professions. That's not the issue here. The issue is not one's better than the other. And the issue is not that Abel's better than Cain or that ranching is better than farming. That's not the issue. The issue is how does a sinner approach a holy God? How does he do it? And the answer is in this story and in the whole rest of the Bible, by the way, only through a blood sacrifice. Innocent blood must be shed. All through the Bible. It's, it's the Mosaic Law. It's their whole reason for the temple. To atone for sin there. All of Leviticus 4 is about that. Most of the book of Leviticus is about the blood sacrifices and the atonement. Okay? So the New Testament is clear on what happened and why one was acceptable and one was not. 
And so what happened? Verse 3, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So apparently God had said, okay, this is how you need to approach me, and I'm going to be there at a certain time, and I want you two to come and bring the blood sacrifice to approach me and be forgiven. And, and this is what they did. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He, he didn't accept it. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Physically, he was, you know, all gnarled up and Emotionally, he was angry. This is mine. This is what I do. This is my vocation. It's important to me. James Dean all over again. But God took the initiative. God took the initiative and approached Cain. God always takes the initiative and approaches sinners. And the Lord said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? Have you got a right to be angry? No. What are you, what's wrong with you? And why has your countenance fallen? There's no reason for it. You have no basis for this. Because if you do well, if you do the right thing, like I told you, will not your countenance be lifted up? Won't everything be right? Won't you be in good shape? You'll be accepted by me. All you got to do is be obedient by faith. You don't have to understand it or agree with it. So, did he respond? God says, if you do well, not your countenance be lifted up. Look at the other side. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. And if you do not do well, guess what? It's just going to get worse. And this is the first place in the Bible where the, the, the concept of sin is actually like a force, a force to be reckoned with. Other places in the Bible, sin is thought of as, as the desires in your body. You know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, and all the other lusts, I'm greedy, sex, the whole deal. And that wants to dominate us. It wants to run our lives. And that's what God's saying here. If, if you don't step up and make the right decision and get right with God, you're just going to go deeper into sin, and it's going to control you. Your desires will control you. And so it says sin is crouching at the door. You know, it's like a thief. It wants to take away your life. And its desire is for you to dominate you. But you must master it. You can't let it do that. So that's the warning. Well, so now he's given him instruction. He's given him warning. He's approached him personally. Surely Cain will come around. I mean, this is the Lord God, and he's a nothing. 
He's made out of dirt. Well, look at the human race today. <laughs> Nothing's changed. They're all just seven billion canes out there, you know, thinking they're incredibly important, and the world revolves around them, right? And so Cain falls deeper into sin. Cain told Abel, his brother, I can just see he's so mad at this whole deal. And he feels this jealousy for his brother. He says, hey, let's go out for a walk in the field. Has some kind of weapon hidden in his back pocket. And it came about when they were in the field. I imagine they were talking about something Cain was probably just guessing, can you believe God mistreated me that way and, you know, wouldn't accept? And Abel probably said, hey, I told you so. Next thing, that's probably the last words he ever got out. Wham! Cain rose up against Abel and killed him. Guess what? God still gave him another chance. God, out of his love for Cain, not only gave him instruction over and over and a warning, now he approaches him again and gives him an opportunity to confess and repent. And he comes to Cain and asks diagnostic questions. What's a diagnostic question? Something that reveals what the problem is. So God knows what he did, but he says, oh, uh, where's Abel, your brother? And so what does Cain do? Cover up, right? Cover up. He lies. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a famous line, isn't it? That's where it comes from. Do I have responsibility for my brother? And of course, in the rest of the Bible, what does it say? Love your brother. Yeah. So the answer is, uh, yeah, but you don't want it. And so God says, okay, look, what have you done? Here's another great line. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Obviously, that's a metaphor, but what does he mean? Abel's murder requires justice. God is not going to overlook it. It requires justice, that justice be done. That's another mistake. The human, the human race is like out there going, oh, you know, my view of God, he's my good buddy, he's Santa Claus. He'll, he'll let this pass. He'll overlook this. I'll, I'll stop doing this tomorrow, you know. I'll just do this one more time and God will be cool with it. No. A holy, righteous God cannot overlook sin. There must be justice. So let me close with the story in Hebrews 12, 24. So if you have your, your Bible there or your device, turn to Hebrews 12, 24. Great, great passage. 
about what we're talking about here. The author's talking about the atonement. And he's already proven that all the priestly atonements, the animal sacrifices, are unnecessary because Jesus has made the perfect sacrifice. It only needed to be done once because it was perfect and of infinite value, and it worked. That's what the author is about. And so in 1224, continuing that argument of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, he says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus has brought in a new and better covenant that atones for sin completely. And to the sprinkled blood, here it is again, the, the blood sacrifice that must be made, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What does he mean? The, the sin of the human race cries out to God for justice. Justice must be done. what happens the blood of Jesus overcomes that metaphorically that sin is crying out to God for justice but Jesus has a perfectly atoned for it and as he says Jesus blood speaks better than the blood of Abel Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's the perfect sacrifice. So we come to him as God's provision. You can't make up your own religion. You must come according to God's plan through Jesus Christ. And so I think we've answered those four questions, right? Where did evil come from? Disobedience. Whose responsibility is it? Ours. Is there only one way to God? Yeah, because God has made the provision, and you can only come that way. You can't make up your own way like Cain did. How can we be righteous and holy in God's eyes? Because we're obedient by faith and believe in Jesus as our Savior. And why was Jesus' death a necessity, as he says here in 1224? Because only the blood of Jesus cries out louder than our sin cries for justice. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your perfect sacrifice. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us in spite of the mistakes and faults that we have made and have. And we thank you, Lord, and we believe in our Savior, and we know that you love us and have accepted that sacrifice of Christ for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.